Jason and I didn't have an opportunity to talk about this morning's lesson, but I couldn't have chosen a better song. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Carl for his, uh, his prayer on my behalf. If you find words of wisdom in what I share with you this morning, then it's proof that the Bible says the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. If, on the other hand, you don't, it's not Carl's fault, it's on me. Just want to disclaim, okay? During a recent visit with my father, he shared with me a devotional that he taught nearly 20 years ago, long before my parents moved to the Annapolis area. I'd like to share the introduction to that devotional with you this morning and offer it as the opening thoughts for my sermon. It was a Sunday Saturday afternoon when Ann and I went over to Annapolis to babysit our two grandchildren while their parents went Christmas shopping. We took William, at the time a first grader, and Timothy, a toddler, to the park across the street for some exercise. During a break in that bike riding, William pulled to a stop in front of me and his grandmother and emphatically said, it took my dad two days to learn how to ride a bike. I said, yes, we were there. Recalling the scene in their, in their apartment parking lot, all the false starts and the neighbor's kid's advice, the frustration of that first day and the triumph of the second. And then William said, it took me two days too. I'm just like my dad. He said it with such pride and certainty that my first reaction was to wonder if Stuart had any real appreciation for this unashamed expression of respect and admiration his son had bestowed upon him, and how powerful was the responsibility that went with it. I'm just like my dad. Well, it did touch me in a very special way, and I frankly hadn't appreciated the depth of his love in that way for me. Another thing that struck me as I considered that message was how seldom I've shown that type of unashamed expression of respect and admiration for my Father in heaven. If you're like me, you have a tendency to fixate on the scripture, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We tend to forget to celebrate those moments when we actually rise to the occasion. We deny ourselves one of life's great joys when, having done something good and righteous and loving and uplifting, we fail to stop and say, that's what my father's like. I'm like my father. That's not sinful pride of claiming to be God. That's the desire of a child to be, like the, to be the person their father wants them to be. Now, Jesus in the Gospels tells his disciples that they must become like little children. This morning, I want to take a look at what that meant and consider how we might properly channel our inner child in a manner that pleases God, our Father. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. I'll be reading Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. I'm glad not all the Bibles are electronic. I can hear pages moving. I know there's, there's action there. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why did Jesus put that child in front of them? What was it he wanted from his disciples that that child could supply? To fully understand that, we have to know what he was responding to with that action and example. Mark helps us see the situation a little more clearly. If you would, 
Listen as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 30, beginning in verse 30. They, Jesus and his disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was to be the greatest. Now the disciples knew from the prophets that the Messiah was coming. They knew they'd found him. They knew he was to establish a kingdom. And he was telling them that he was going to die. All they heard and all they understood about that was, there's a kingdom and he's going to die. All they wanted to know was, who's the heir? Their argument was driven by selfish ambition and pride. And it was these attitudes that caused Jesus to call the little child into their midst. With that in mind, let's reread Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus began by telling them that they needed to be converted. The Greek word there means to turn back or to change your mind. He warns them that a failure to set aside their pride and their ambition will not only keep them from being great in the kingdom of heaven, it will keep them from entering its gates at all. In putting the child before them, he was calling on them to replace that pride and ambition with humility and innocence. In the very next chapter, he attempted to reinforce that message by telling his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Our God wants to, us to channel our inner child through an attitude of humility and one of innocence, both in our relationships with him and our associations with each other. To be childlike before God means retaining that sense of awe that children have, to acknowledge our total dependence that children have, and holding an abiding trust in him that children feel for those in, the, who, in whose charge they stand. Let's talk about the sense of awe. When was the last time something truly took your breath away? Something that was so beautiful, so expansive, so incredible that you couldn't describe it. Little children find wonder in all sorts of unusual places and new experiences. That's because so much is new to them. As we grow older and the scope of our experiences grow, we can sometimes become hard to impress, a little jaded. If we are not careful, that type of attitude can translate into our relationship with our God and our Creator. Want a refresher on how incredible God is? We know from the Gospels of His boundless love, His endless mercy, His matchless grace, and His perfect justice. But if you want the big picture of the God who created us, a sense of the scope of who we're dealing with here, I invite you to go to Job chapter 38 through 41. Job's complaining about the way that life has treated him, about God's justice, about, about how things have turned out for him and the suffering that he's had to endure. God responds to Job's complaint and challenges, challenges him. The beginning of that four chapters begins, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? 
Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who, stre who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? And who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? 129 verses later, a very humble Job says, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen to me and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears have heard you, but my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It was a wake-up call. Job had his problems, Job had his issues, and he called God into question. God reminded him exactly who God was and what God had accomplished. From the greatness of the creation of the universe to the life of a moth. I invite you to take a look at that and refresh your mind why our God is an awesome God and why he is worthy of our awe. Let's talk about the acknowledgement of dependence. When was the last time you relied entirely on another human being for everything you had, everywhere you went, anything you did? Little children depend on, on others for life itself. As we grow older and our ability to provide for ourselves increases, we become more independent and self-confident. That type of self-confidence can lead to hubris, the sense that I can do it on my own. If we're not careful, that sense of pride and self-sufficiency can prevent us from acknowledging our need for a redeemer or undermine our relationship with him once it's established. Paul reminds us that we have to depend entirely on God for our salvation. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is, grace, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How about abiding trust? How often have you felt that you could trust someone to never fail you? Little children know that type of trust, when, when it, maybe when it involves jumping off the side of a pool into their mother's arms or falling asleep in dad's lap during a particularly violent thunderstorm. As we grow older and we see weakness in even the best of the people around us, I'll take that as an amen and an inner child comment. <laughs> as we grow older and we see weakness in even the best of the people around us, we can become more cautious about giving others our unconditional trust. If we're not careful, we can forget there is one who is always worthy of our unconditional confidence and trust. It is our God. The prophet Jeremiah, having foretold and witnessed the fall of Israel and recounting his own personal suffering, paused in the middle of lamentations to say, I remember my afflictions and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. 
I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I recall, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will trust in him. Paul declared a similar confidence in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's that for trust? How's that for confidence? As little children, we should have that type of confidence and be able to say, I will trust in him. When Jesus, when he placed that little child before the disciples, was not just talking about their attitude toward God. He was admonishing them with regard to the way they were treating each other. He wanted them to show childlike humility and innocence to those around them. And he wants the same for us today. Like them, we are expected to turn away from the ambition and pride that drive us to seek our own ends and our own success at the expense of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In a similar manner, in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, he says, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. In this, as in all things, Christ is our perfect example. Do you recall in the scripture where it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Christ was the perfect child. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. How trusting is that? Now, just as there are some childlike qualities God wants us to demonstrate in our relationships, there are some aspects of childhood that we need to outgrow. And it's important when you're when you're uh, holding forth on your, on your inner child, that you keep track of what's good and what's not about being childlike. For instance, young children are not very good at discerning right from wrong and can be easily misled. As I was thinking about this issue, I couldn't help but think about kids' soccer. Anybody here ever watched a kids' soccer game? I know you have. A coach noting the tendency of the kids to flock around the ball and follow it around the field had this observation. They would need more experience to learn that just because everyone else was running towards something didn't mean it was right for them. Eventually, they would come to see that impulse and enthusiasm are great, but so are awareness and discernment. Don't just chase the ball. Paul's writing to the early church suggests that they were at risk of falling into a similar trap, following faulty doctrine offered by eloquent teachers. He encouraged Christians in both Corinth and Ephesus to be mature in their understanding of doctrine and discerning in the matters of faith. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. If you want to turn with me, we'll be reading there. 
Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. Actually, I got a little adventurous in my cut and paste here. It's probably going to go beyond 15. Stick with me. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. The idea of, of necessity of growing beyond what you were to something more, to a deeper understanding of what God's word and God's will is for you, is important. To retain the innocence and to retain the humility within the context of the relationships is vital. But to do so with knowledge and understanding is also important. Now let's be clear, Jesus and Paul were not contradicting each other in their different uses uh, of child as an example. One tells us to be childlike, and the other warns us not to be childish. God wants us to channel our inner child, slow, showing humility and innocence in our relationships. But he also expects us to pursue maturity in our understanding of his word. Both Jesus and Paul made this clear, this combination of things that are important to us as we channel our inner child. Jesus, when he was preparing the twelve for their first mission work, told them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. As shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. The first time I read this verse, I was very confused. I confess that it took preparing this sermon to help me kind of see the balance that he is proclaiming to them. They're going to be in very difficult times. The nature of the relationships and their behavior and their attitude toward those around them is vital. But their grasp of what they have been given in the way of a divine message is critical. Because no matter how you feel about those around you and how you approach those around you, if you are preaching and teaching the wrong thing, you're doomed. Paul, in a similar manner, warned the early church, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. That's 1 Corinthians 14.20 if you're taking notes. What Christ told his disciples is true for us today. No one enters the kingdom of heaven unless they are converted and become as little children. In humility and awe, we approach our God turning back from who we were and trusting that he alone is able to redeem us through the, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we appeal for mercy and grace as we approach his throne, seeking baptism, raising our hands in a desire for a cleansing and a relationship that he has sought since the founding of the world and has made possible through the cross. It is as a child that we approach our God 
and put on Christ in baptism. If you've not done these things, why not channel the inner child that Christ called on his disciples to show? Show the humility and the dedication to being the person that your father wants you to be. Now, Paul was right, too. While he must be Christ-like, we cannot afford to be naive about the word. We must be discerning and thoughtful in pursuit of God's will for us and in the way we live our lives around others. Only in that way can we attain what Paul called the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If you find you've fallen short of that mark and you need help or you need support, this too is an opportunity to come forward and make your need known. Whatever your need may be, won't you come as we stand and sing?